0: I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. In our eighth and final episode, we sit down with skiing icon Glenn Plake. As a pioneer of the extreme skiing movement, Plake is most well known for his seminal appearances in the classic Greg Stump films Blizzard of Oz, The Maltese Flamingo, and License to Thrill. With his signature Mohawk, Plake is arguably the most recognizable and most well-known skier in the world. Over three decades, he has maintained a love for all disciplines of the sport and a drive that has kept him timelessly relevant. Whether skiing 8,000-meter peaks, recording for Warren Miller films, or traveling the country to small and remote resorts as part of his down-home tour, Plake has spread the love of skiing to literally millions across the globe. Many of Glenn's physical accomplishments have been well documented. In our chat, I wanted to learn a little more about him as a person. Glenn Plake occupies the rare air of hero status for many skiers. In our conversation, I quickly realized that he is a historian of skiing, and Glenn is indeed one of the brightest shining lights we've ever had the chance to chat with. And he does not disappoint. I like talking in a grab
1: bag format though, just because it's more fun.
0: Yeah, no, I think, and you could talk about any one of those five or six topics grab for bag an hour at it's a time. Kind of
1: interesting, and then a lot of people like, you know, even last night I didn't mention, you know, um, while my peers were out heli skiing in Alaska and doing all that, I never did. Right, I've yet to ever go heli skiing in Alaska, yeah, um,
0: which I think is awesome.
1: Because I was busy climbing mountains. I was mm-hmm. busy. Finding new places to ski and new ground and new technique and developing new technique and developing equipment that allowed me to do the things that I wanted to do because it didn't work. I mean, we weren't going to go ski around on freaking ramers. We, you know, so I made my own bindings. I made two pairs, one for me, one for Darren. Yeah, I didn't. I forgot to mention that last night, but yeah, it was funny that uh, no, we didn't talk about any of it. It wasn't worth talking about. Just did it. Yeah, I mean, who the heck went backcountry? Freaking bunch of hippies and a couple of stubborn mules. That was. <laughs> You know, you're either dumb and stupid or stubborn. That's what it took to go to the (laughs) backcountry. Right. (laughs) And we didn't say much about it. Didn't say even, and I'm happy to see cars at the trailhead. I think it's hilarious that to, I think the other, I think I counted 35 people on Morrison a couple of springs ago. Mm -hmm.
0: But you were originally, you're born in Livermore,
1: right? Yeah, I was born in in Livermore. uh, But I was, uh, I was born there just because my grandparents were there. And, and there was no hospital in no real hospital time, right? and i hadn't moved to tahoe yet my my mother had done uh, holidays in tahoe uh, they moved to montana where my dad was going to school and uh that's what got me and got me on skis for the first time my dad was a football player and and my mom was pretty athletic she's a big water skier and you know it was time i was just born and, and i'm not sure exactly why or how but i yeah it was time to put him on a pair of skis got me on a pair of skis my parents divorced very quickly after that but they had moved back to now they'd moved to tahoe i was either going to live in my mom wanted to live near a lake and i was either going to they were either going to move to flathead lake and i would have been from montana or they moved to tahoe right and then shortly after that i was put into a ski team and it was really my mom that drove my skiing development again my parents had divorced my my father lived in town of course he became a fireman for the city down there. But it was my mom's uh, kind of commitment to me to continue with my adolescent ski programs, adolescent ski development. And then I made some decisions on my own that kind of took me from the adolescent learn-to-ski demo, devo programs that we call today, let's say, being the skier that I ultimately, I guess, became or are becoming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: were those decisions? They pulled you down the mm-hmm. the path of Glen Plake.
1: I am... Um, In South Shore, you know, a lot of hot doggers were living in South Shore. The biggest names in freestyle were living in South Lake Tahoe, you know, big party town. And who were they? John Clondin was based in Tahoe. Bob Salerno was, he was Utah, but he spent a lot of time in Tahoe. Um, You know, Bill O'Leary was living in Tahoe. He still lives in Tahoe, actually. The World Finals was always in, you know, at Heavenly. Right. You know, he had all these massive... um, competitions they had the they had a freestyle training center in south lake tahoe and what year was that late 80s it would have been the 70s 70s okay. yeah i was young huh? yeah. i was little kids six yeah. seven eight nine years old you know um and i'm watching all this at the same time we were having world cup ski races come there too i mean you know they had G S uh every year at heavenly and so we had that influence also uh, but it was the hot doggers that i would see in town i'd see them in the summertime, they had a jump built over at Zephyr Cove. Would sit there and watch them jump into the water. Let's see that type of skiing that I wanted to be a part of. Right, you know, as a little kid watching the, you know, the hot doggers come down the gun barrel. So and it really simple. I remember just riding a chairlift, uh, looking down at uh, one of the skiers of that time, and it, it flat out. I mean, I kind of made that decision someday I will be the skier that everybody's looking at when I ski. I'm gonna. They're gonna be on the chairlift and go wow like. I want to ski like that guy.
0: So those guys were massively influential for you? Absolutely. Sucked you out of race. And, um,
1: and so I was, I think I was probably like 11 or 12. I mean, I remember kind of, I have this flash memory in my head of like, yeah, okay. Now I didn't know what I wanted to be and I was pretty, yeah, I was not going to do it in the normal way. Right. I knew that there was some other way that I was going to be a skier and how did but you- i had no idea how <laughs> or why or what um you know i was a massive fan of ski movies i was a um you know i just loved sitting at the pizza par- pizza parlor and watching ski movies and and i'd go to the ski shop and i'd just ask him to play the ski movies over and over and over and i used to just i was so i loved those images and uh and then as i as i got older yeah my skills developed i definitely would say i was a late bloomer i was not a child childhood prodigy at all. I mean, I was literally, uh, you know, it wasn't until my teens that let's say my skiing truly developed. And how did you, how did you go from like race world to
0: being influenced by those hot dog, um, skiers to your squaw
1: and blizzard of Oz days? The way a youth gets involved in the sport is through ski racing. It's just the way it is. And now, yes, we have free ride teams and, and we have, you know little kinder big mountain comps and we have and it's cute and all but th- let's face it the you're still the kinder cup is still going to be it you're still going to get on the ski racing team first what happens next fortunately those have been developed which wasn't the case in our world you were not allowed to ski like a freestyler that was absolutely taboo if you were on the racing team i was kicked off the racing team many times because I found a jump on my way to the training hill. And so we'd be over session in this jump and sure enough, we'd miss a training run. The coach would come over and find us and we're over in the trees, you know, on this jump. And and uh, and during the time that, that would get you basically removed from the team for a period of time, which was quite funny actually to, looking back. Um, so yeah, the freestylers, you know, they were not welcomed uh, by the skiing community, you know, whatever. Um, they run short skis or they skied funny or, I mean, there was definitely that animosity between the ski racer and the freestyler, especially in the, in the hot-dogging years. But it was what we wanted to do. I mean, we saw that. And I feel bad for our old race coaches because they really wanted to turn us into skiers. And they did, ultimately. And Helmut Hutenmeyer was our, our main coach. And I think Helmut just retired like a year or so ago. He was still teaching kids at Heavenly. Hadn't seen him in years, like a long time, like 10, 15 years probably. And I'm standing on top of the gun barrel. Darren was with me. We just happened to be skiing together, and we ski up and uh, and there's helmet, and we're like, "No way, helmet, what's up, man?" And he looks at us and and he just goes he's like, "Plake!" <laughs> and then he looks over to Darren and he's like, "Johnson," and he like pauses in his little funny way, and he's this little Austrian dude he's about five feet tall. It appears as that I taught you little brats how to ski after all <laughs> We hadn't seen him in years and that's right. what he told us. <laughs> you were probably the biggest protege, right? <laughs> and and he was very, very proud of us. And he was extremely and in and, 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 and we had re kind of kindled our relationship and he was extremely proud of the skiers that we had become, given the fact that he was teaching us how to ski when we were six and seven and, and eight and watched us go through all the different stuff. Um, but to to make that transition into freestyle again it was racing was the path that was the only path free so so we're 12 13 years old thinking this is going to be great i'm watching cars giving away this is awesome all i got to do is freaking do my time and and next thing you know i'm going to be a i'm going to be on the professional freestyle tour except it ended in the late 70s legal lawsuits come in somebody gets sued this that this that next thing you know there's no jumping signs everywhere and everything that the freestyle movement brought forth was absolutely forbidden, Squashed. absolutely forbidden. There was no professional freestyle. the The women's tour was paying seventy five thousand dollars wow. every year. You know, back in the in the seventies, they gave away um, John Clondennan. One, or no, uh, Salerno or no, Clenden, Clendenin won three cars in three sp- three weekends in a row. He won. He had three <laughs> cars. He told me the story. He lost one of them because he got drunk. Didn't even know where it went. They got a phone call from Denver police like five weeks later. Like, is this your car? <laughs> yeah. You <know? laughs> I mean, let's face it. They were going. You know, they were a rowdy group, huh? And it was all gone. I mean, it's just gone. Right. Um, Squashed. And at the same time, now all of a sudden, we're right at that age where. We're no, there's no junior racing programs anymore because we're late. We're starting to get into late teens. Well, if you don't have a training hill to ski on, you're not going to advance as a ski racer anymore. Yeah, I heard about far west freestyle mogul competition and I'm like, I'm pretty good at skiing bumps. I'm, we should go over and do that. I'm going to do that. And I ended up entering a mogul competition and I was always a very good, strong technical skier and so we kind of went down this mogul run and got third over at uh my first contest was at boreal mm-hmm. and i kind of went well that's not that hard to do to get third she'd all have this wrapped up in a matter of a weekend or two and sure enough that same year i ended up qualifying for nationals which was something that i had never done in the racing world following year I kind of hooked up with darren darren's going what's going you know what's been doing i'm like i've been going to these bump contests dude You should come you know and so he ends up going to them and we start, you know, interpreting the rules and, and morphing our, our skiing to be better at that. And we're kind of going down this road of, wow, I guess we're going to make the U.S. ski team after all. It's just we're not going to be ski racers doing it. <laughs> yeah, and so that's kind of how I got, let's say, into the freestyle world. The, the only problem is it wasn't something that I was really overly interested in. Because at the, as I was developing those skills, I'm also looking at mountains and I don't. I'm not that concerned with skiing the ski area anymore. Like I, you know, I, I was developing in a different way at that exact same time, and going to the competitions literally became a formality to, to um, do what I'm supposed to be doing, even though it wasn't something that I was that interested in. I had some disappointments. You know, I qualified for the U.S. ski team, and then all of a sudden found out that, um, you know, I didn't really have the resources behind me to. Um, Allow me to move forward, and when I got to a certain level, I, I and maybe and I was wrong. Um, you know, I thought, oh, you get to this level and things start getting taken care of, and things start getting you know. And I got the seven hundred dollar bill for my uniform that year. I went, well, I don't have that. I don't have any money. <laughs> and then I was being from the far west. It, it, even to this day, I mean, I well, I've had the most amazing career ever you could ever imagine. There's no doubt about it that being from the Far West has, has, has put a slight hindrance on me. Right. Um, we're the outcast. We always have been. We always will be. And so uh, at that time, the certainly the, the freestyle team was basically Colorado-based 100%. And uh, being an outsider from the Far West, I didn't really mesh with any of the guys on the team anyways. It was kind of kind of interesting to uh so i just it, again it wasn't something that i was interested in and at the same time i was my my climbing skills my mountaineering skills my uh my ability to go ski places outside of the ski area was becoming more and more um, interesting to me
0: so you're doing this with darren when you're 15, 16, 16,
1: 17, yeah. 18.
0: And then how do you end up kind of auditioning at so Squaw?
1: Be the one thing that does happen through my competition is I end up running into Mike Hattrop. He was a competitor. He was from Pacific Northwest um, who came down to Far West Division to compete because we were kind of known for being a little, a little uh, more competitive. Because I was qualifying for nationals, I ended up running into Jeff Stump. Who was also competing in our division, whose brother was Greg Stump? They had made a couple of movies already. They had made uh, "Where the Droids You're Looking For." That was his uh, his uh, first film, and, and they had just finished "Time Waits for Snowman." And I told Hat Trip, "Dude, you know how I ski, and you guys are out there making these ski films. And I mean, don't you think I fit somehow in there? I mean, come on, dude." I mean I'm here at this dang comps but you know I'm here just for protocol I'm not here because I want to be <laughs> I need to be out doing what something else you know that it goes back to that same old thing it's like if there's ever been a quest of me I I just it makes me so mad that the best skiers on the mountain never got rewarded for that and I don't mean that financial reward is the answer but it sure makes it a little easier if I can <laughs> pick up a little you know if you can pick up a a, a A living as opposed to let's say having to you know work the typical ski area jobs to get by when you clearly are the best skier on the mountain those people should have opportunities I think yeah anyways um so um yeah we were doing that and so I got to meet Greg I skied a little bit with one day with him and and uh it was actually Maltese Flamingo that was being filmed at Squaw and I said okay you guys are going to be out there and they're like yeah we're gonna be out second week of April or something it's like, all right, cool, I'll hook up. Then the movies were sponsored by different, like at the time, K2 and Squ- and uh, Solomon, I think Olin or something was sponsored. So you kind of had to have the, the gear to ski in the film. It's not like today where everybody got to have their own gear. And I was already getting sponsorship from SOS, which was the clothing company at that time. And so... I literally, I went to my buddy's ski shop over the Rainbow Mountain South Shore. I was like, dude, I need some rent. You got them Solomon boots? I need a pair of them Solomon boots. And I basically showed up to to Squaw and uh, or that spring and we filmed um, filmed uh, what became Maltese Flamingo. After the Squaw segment, I said, what are you guys doing now? They said, we're going down to Beatty. We're going to go ski on the sand dune. I go, sounds good. Let's go. So I went down and, and, and skied in the sand skiing segment. Yeah, so wow, all of a sudden I'm going to be in a ski movie. I come home and tell my dad, I'm like, yeah, I just got done doing a ski film. And yeah, it was pretty funny. And, you know, it was kind of like, well, how much did you get paid for that? I'm like, well, actually, Greg gave me a $20 bill and I hitchhiked from Vegas. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I did, dude. I literally I hitchhiked from the sand dune all the way to South Shore to get home. So it wasn't a real high paying job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the next day I broke my leg. Didn't ski for 18 months. And looking back at that filming of, the, uh, of Maltese, I was so, I was so proud all those years working on my technique and being different. And I'm, I've been given several awards around the world for being, you know, most influential mogul skier. I never won a, you know, I, I never won a world championships like, like Edgar or something, but I've, I've been recognized as, as a mogul skier for one way or another. And I'm not in the mogul segment in Maltese Flamingo on West Face. Classic. And it bums me out. I wanted to do it so bad. And the story why I am not in that mogul segment is me and Christian Schneider were like five minutes late going up there. And, um, I was walking to the chairlift and as we're walking to the chairlift, somebody from Squaw Valley marketing came out and said, what are you doing? And I said, "Uh, we're going to go film up in West face. And I had my leather jacket on, my hawk up already for my mogul skiing segment. And they said, uh, you're not the type of image that Squaw wants to be represented And they didn't let me on the chairlift. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny little weird unknown fact. But that's why I'm not in the mogul skiing segment of Maltese. Classic. Trippy. Uh trippy. So anyways, 18 months go by. I'm really messed up. And then uh, I'm starting to heal up and starting to get back on my ski legs and had done a bunch of things. Life had... St- through some curveballs here and there but anyways then uh then blizzard comes around and greg didn't want to have anything to do with me he was terrified of me because
0: want have- of the curveballs
1: yeah crazy curveballs crazy rumors broken legs people no oh man i don't know let's just let's just keep doing my little thing you know greg was kind of like a perfect peter back in those days you know he had his had his little gig going, and they're like, "We don't necessarily need to go down that road." But that um, probably poured gasoline on that fire for well, you. There was one man, Carl Labby, was Greg's like marketing guy, and also um, Scott Kennett, and of course, Hatrip kind of let the cat out of the bag, and they were like, "We're filming at Squ- at Snowbird next week," and I showed up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I literally I, I drove all night. I sold my sold a pair I sold my boots because I knew I needed to ski on on Solomon's so I sold my Rileys grabbed another pair of rentals from the ski shop and drove out there so that I had all the right equipment on and basically knocked on their door at like 7 a.m I even knew what room they were in and said hey what's I'm here up? here I am <laughs> and we did the snowbird segment for blizzard and then I kind of said so where are we at what's going on and, and he's like well we you know, we I've hired Scott Schmidt to go to Europe with us, which kind of pissed me off actually. Because, and I I'm, I have nothing personal against Scott. There, there's a little bit of a rivalry, but believe me, it's nothing personal. Um, and I was like, "What the hell are you hire? You know, dude, excuse for Warren Miller? What the hell's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> come on, Greg, that's the enemy. What are you doing?" And so whatever, they had hired Scott, and there was rumors of going to Europe, and obviously I really wanted to somehow get to Europe, and and also Bruce Benedict was a, a massive uh, supporter of me and, and fan of mine, and, and Bruce said, yeah, we're going to be filming at Squaw next week. Originally, it was supposed to only be Scott, Mike, and uh, Lynn Weiland. But she broke her back, And right? she heard her back, and it literally opened the door. So the day after the Squaw Valley segment, I hauled butt to L.A., and... Basically, just sat in line as long as I could to get a passport because I didn't have a passport. Then uh, stayed at a friend's house in in uh, in San Diego for a couple of days. Sold my car for two hundred dollars and literally stood on the on ramp there. I still I drive by that on ramp every time I go to Mexico, but I, I, I literally I stood right on the on ramp there of, of uh, going to I five with my thumb in the air and a pair of skis in my hand and I hitchhiked to LAX and got on a plane to uh, Chamonix. So rad. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> so that's a
0: lot of drive, yeah. like what, you know, to make that happen. All of these things happen.
1: Yeah. Where, where do you think that comes from? It comes from my grandparents. Yeah, it comes from being, a, being around my grandparents, for sure. Depression era, no, no folks. Yeah, just, yeah, depression era, farmers. I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, yeah, I think that's where it comes from. I think that's that drive that comes from. And whether it's a drive that I've been able to, to use physically... Or a drive that I use um, mentally, whether it's the patience to finish building a race car that still needs 250, you know, manual hours put on it, or just that you know that final push to get back to camp after a long summit day or something. You know, um, I have to um, somehow blame it on them. I also I built trusses for uh, Tahoe Truss. <laughs> uh, Bruce Hall was my boss back then and bruce was a pretty hard guy to not a hard guy to work for but he, he wasn't afraid of hard work right and so um i say kind of in my late teens building trusses for bruce definitely kind of put something in me that we'd work long days you know we I, I remember the police coming and telling us to shut the saws down at midnight and Bruce going, you know, just tell me what the fine is because if I can get this job off this table by tomorrow morning, it's gonna be I'm gonna make a lot more money in the fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> and it was like you know our we you know we were already into eighty hours that week, you know, um, but I think it ha- yeah it has something to do with my grandparent or my grandfather specifically. It sounds like you spent a lot of time with him. Not wrenching. a lot of time, but the time that I did spend with him was yeah I enjoyed it for yeah. sure. Yeah, you know, he was yeah. He took, it just took time, you know, you're, you know, you're kind of, especially as a young kid or something, you're like, oh, I got to do this. Come on, come on, let's weld this up. And you're working on a go-kart or something, come on, come on, come on. It'd take a day or two later. You're like, why did it take so long? You know, but it's just because it, that's how long it took. Right. You know? I don't want to say I have that great of a work ethic, but I do. I, I think in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stupid, I guess. But it, it sounds like Darren was a big influence on you. In Darren that was a great friend and is a great friend. Um, and uh, yeah, during that time frame, we spent a boatload of time together. And and what we were doing was uh, we were doing cool things. and We just kind of what we thought was next for us. Again, it wasn't popular at the time. It wasn't. It was what we did for ourselves. I mean, I, I'd go work my tail off. I'd go promo after promo after promo and and we'd, I'd do these trips from here to there and there and and literally when I'd get home uh, that was our time you know it was time to get in the mountains time to go time to go you know be who let's say we wanted to be regardless of uh, what the industry was was trying to do with me yeah
0: and who else were your mentors growing up and mostly those hot dog guys
1: yeah for the most part mm-hmm. um yeah the old hot doggers We love ski racing. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I I love every aspect of the sport. That's what I think. I think that's probably what's gotten me where I am. I mean, I just, even when, like, we do our down-home tours, um, you know, I always have my slalom skis with me. I've been hanging out at the park, sliding some rail or something, and, and six hours later, I'm skiing 12 slalom gates set up on the bottom of a jump hill. I think our sport has so many aspects and so many factions and so many, I mean, if if you've never been to a ski flying competition, I, I strongly recommend everybody to go. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing to sit there and watch a guy fly, you know, two hundred meters on a pair of skis. It, it doesn't make sense, and does it have anything to do with skiing? Yeah, probably we could say no, but it sure is freaking cool, it's and cool. he's got some skis on. So I'm going. I I'm going to support it. Yeah. Um, and I wanna I wanna come back to your
0: like commitment to every discipline because I mm-hmm. I love that about you. But if you look back now, you know, in two thousand and eighteen on those Blizzard of Oz days mm-hmm. and look at what's going on in the industry now or the ski movies that have run that spectrum, how do you view it in, in retrospective compared to what's going on today?
1: I don't think Blizzard of Oz was groundbreaking in really any way, to mm-hmm. be honest. It wasn't groundbreaking as, as much as it was just a wake-up call to what we should be doing. Look what was done in the past. And then we went down this weird road of perfect Peter and elk medallions and golf games. And that had nothing to do with skiing. And yet that is exactly what skiing became. And it made no sense at all to me. I could not figure out how we came into that realm of uh, the ski resort and ela- elaborate on that a little bit. Like I've heard you talk about the Ken dolls and, yeah. you know, so people who, who aren't familiar with that, that era. it's just, I mean, if you go back to, and, and then now in recent years, you know, free ride and oh, free ride and, and, this and that it's, you know, this new thing and, and it's the, you know, we're the outcast and, and it's this and that. And I'm like, no, 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 wait a second. Find me a picture of somebody skiing a groomed slope in 1970. Find one. Find me a picture of somebody race carving or Euro carving or whatever you want to call it in 1980. It doesn't exist. If I go back to the House in the 40s, I clearly see people walking up the mountain and skiing down and having a good time and free riding by definition. So when you tell me that we are not, in fact, the tradition of the sport, I'm going to call you out because you are the manufactured form of the sport. There is nothing natural about skiing anymore at all. Anybody that thinks skiing is an environmentally, like you know, sound activity is freaking crazy. There's nothing natural about it. There's there everything is manufactured. Everything has been homogenized, and uh, the ski area experience is. Yeah, you call it Disneyland, right? It's not a it's not a natural right. thing, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's no different than than golf or tennis or anything else. I mean, they really have in fact included it into into that type of an activity and it's not I mean, you put these big dumb things on your feet, you slide down, you got no brakes, you're in the harshest environment in the world. There's trees everywhere, there's hard stuff everywhere, there's things you can hit. It's freaking dangerous and yet we don't let that part of it be talked about. Right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think that's the lure in fact i think right. that's what i think that's what makes people like it right um, it's kind of a primal thing from the from a base standpoint of yeah. course you got your people on vacation and and they i guess want something else out of the sport uh, skiers i think want those basic roots of the sport and that's mm-hmm. you go up the hill and then you ski back down right. it right. it's kind of that simple i think the blizzard woke everybody up to hey wait a second that's how we should be skiing. That looks fun. That okay, no jumping allowed. I mean, I got no jumping signs. I got a collection of them in my shop. <laughs> they were everywhere. Snowboarding had come around, and the dang stupid ski industry bowed down to the snowboarder so low. You know, they're gonna save the sport. Save the sport from what? The sport's fine. There's nothing wrong with the sport right now. Though, what's wrong with the sport is that you've not allowed it to be free. Right. So then, all of a sudden, the the boardies come in. You know, all of a sudden they're building their parks and they're doing this. Skiers are not allowed in it. I'm not telling that old of a war story right. here, but skiers were not allowed in the park. Right. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like I say, the, the the no jumping, the this, the that, the this. The, it was just like you couldn't, you were not allowed to go skiing. It was so weir- so weird. Right. And all of a sudden blizzard comes around, and yes, you know, and and people are like, oh wait a second. Look, those guys. Because if you look at, I just watched it the other night for the first time in a really long time. And if you look at Blizzard, with the exception of the Envers du Plan segment off the Aiguille du Midi, every part of that film is skiing hard pack. It's either messed up crud or moguls. And yet everybody wants to look at the other, let's say, the spectacles of it mm-hmm. instead of looking at the meat of where we're skiing. Because people ask me, what do you what do you think about when we're we're skiing? When you watch that old film? And I think of two things. One, I think we were, in fact, technically very advanced considering the, you know, skiing on the skis we're skiing on and what have you. And the other thing I see is look at the terrain we're skiing on. We're... Kind of just skiing hard pack at the ski area, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of cool. I, I think that's, I, I like that aspect of it. And so anyways, I think it woke everybody up and reminded you because the, the only other version of the sport, and this is why I was so mad when Greg brought Scott in, was the freaking white turtleneck, the red and blue sweater or whatever the hell they were, sitting there having their freaking elk medallions. Right. And another boring freaking ski situation. But even Scott, while he was certainly playing that game, is dropping off top palisades. Mm-hmm. But he even had to play the Ken doll, you know, even though he kind of was. But that's interesting because
0: I've also read you downplay, you know, being a extreme skier and just saying, no, I'm a link in the chain of this sport that's been kind of
1: homogenized and dumbed down to the, no to the soul it. skier, right? No doubt about it, I uh, I think. From an extreme skiing standpoint, this was really funny and that <laughs> I just got done watching Greg's deal with the Brian Gumble thing. I'm so stupid on that thing looking back because I'd been in Chamonix for 18 months. I'd been skiing with, I watched Tardevel ski the Pillar Angel. I watched him do it. I had been skiing with Valençant. Actually, Valençant was snowboarding during those era, but I, I was, I'm was. i on the Grand Monte with Valençant. I'm, I'm there and then I come home and I keep hearing all this extreme skiing and... And I'm like, uh, you guys, I, you know, I had already skied Glacierone. I'd already skied Cosmic. I'd already skied Wimperkuar. I, I, I had started dilly-dallying with Grand Course. And so I was like in this kind of like, whoa, you don't know, you guys. <laughs> There's this other thing going on. I had made a step way beyond what everybody else was even thinking about myself personally um, and kind of made a commitment. I, I, found some other article the other day when someone asked me you know it was that exact same year they asked me are you an extreme skier i said no but give me 10 years and i will be because i knew i had 10 years of of mountaineering skills that i needed to develop it was going to take me that long i mean i was a dumb freaking mogul skier from california all of a sudden i'm in chamonix trying to you know no you're like
0: 19 20 20
1: yeah You ain't freaking you know i mean you know we're i'm stumbling around trying to make it work based on physical ability my other friends had climb le vert at, at, at age 13 <laughs> a little bit different <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, know? <laughs> you know so uh i had some development to do and that does now that doesn't take away from my love of the, of the sierra and i i think the sierra in fact prepped me very good and will continue to prep me and you know we didn't we don't have no freaking glaciers over here you know i didn't know what a glacier was until i got to chamonix right um so i had a lot of development to do, I had my eyes open, and so when I was on the Bryant Gumble show, and they're talking about extreme skiing, I'm like, No, no, no! There's this whole other thing that you don't even know about. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we all live in our own little worlds, yeah, I guess. It's pretty funny.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I, um, I had a lot of development to do right. on my own. The chain thing on the freestyle side of things, and also on the steep skiing side of things. The old hot doggers called me the bridge. That's my nickname if you ask clendenin or you ask salerno or not they they call me the bridge because i'm just old enough to know what happened but i'm also maybe just a little too old to let's say be doing it in the modern world mm-hmm. i mean by the way my favorite ski films are still to this day rail riding films. because nice. <laughs> it's i hate to say it but it's literally it's stripped down to this kind of really weird pure form it, i know it makes no sense at all and i I, I can't even fathom that I say that, but it, um that there's something about the, the the purity of what the what the gibber kids are doing, yeah. where they're doing it, you know, yeah. some forest in West Virginia banging out some rail. I think, I mean, seriously, that's awesome. You know, I'm one of the founding fathers of of skier trash, and and we're the outcasts. It's just the way it is. But I have a hard time thinking that in the last 100 years, and I'm being generous by saying 100 years because I could say the last 60 years because that's probably really as old as modern skiing really is. There is no difference in the brain or human development from what Hannes Schneider and everybody was doing when modern ski technique was developed and what Tanner was doing a few years ago or what some kid's going to be doing 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. We can also say, back it up, what I was being influenced by is no different than what airborne eddie ferguson was influenced by which is no different than what art Fuhr and tom leroy and all the skiers of ski the outer limits were influenced by which is no different than the skiing that was uh that stein erickson was being influenced by when stein did a flip for the first time it was the same brain that was was airborne eddie's for the first time, which is the same brain that was maybe my flips for the first time, which is the same brain that I just don't think we've changed that much. Mm -hmm. I don't think the tricks may have become more difficult, let's face it. Even though we can argue Herman Goldner did throw a triple front flip back in 1966. So maybe the tricks haven't, in fact, advanced that much. Frankie Bear threw a triple twisting quad at Donner Ski Ranch in 1980. I'm sorry, but that's every bit of, of a triple cork and then some. Mm-hmm. He was 80 feet in the air when he did it. So while I'm not taking away from anything, because the tricks have certainly changed, I just th- I just don't think the mind has changed very yeah. much. I think it's the same brain. I think it's the same passion. It's the same feelings. It's the same drive, it's all these things all these similarities, so with that, I simply say we're just simply adding links to the chain and and I don't want to take away from other people's accomplishments, but um you're just an extension, and that's all we were in Blizzard. We were an extension we had we were a special link we were maybe a twist we were like a we were one of them links with the bolt on the yeah you know like where <laughs> you hook two broken chains together right, yeah. <laughs> Well, (laughs) we were, uh, I can't remember those, but yeah, like a twist link where we said, okay, hang on, the chain's been broken, we need to hook it back up. Right, well, and I think it's really
0: insightful to you as a person, you know, you're viewed as this outspoken, you know, know, person, but you have the perspective of being able to say, no, I'm not the baddest mother on the mountain Mm -hmm. because all these people came before me and you were saying that when you were 20 years old. Not a lot of people can say that at that age, let alone ones with a mohawk and...
1: I don't know, I guess I just oh, you just get influenced by other people and you see other people's accomplishments and I've I've always been able to appreciate that, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's great.
1: You know, I mean, here we are sitting here on the table and people don't see it, but, you know, we're looking at, at, uh, you know, at old uh, Orland Bartholomew's book, you know. That's no Gore-Tex hood. No, uh uh-uh. And that wasn't no no 100-day ski tour that he did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Head out into the Sierras, uh... When was that? In it was like eight. It was nineteen o. When Her, was this? Early nineteen hundreds. I mean, he's wearing fur. So oh, yeah, no, he's. When did he do this? I've read this book, and now I feel bad that I don't know this. I, I am, I'm, I'm a bit of an elephant. I don't forget very much.
0: Yeah, no, that's obvious.
1: Anyways, um, I've been always aware of uh, those you're, you're that have his, come before me. Yeah, and um, you're a historian. I'm not going to take obvious. away from anything that they did or or uh and had intent to do and and i, I guess as we look back uh, you know someone will maybe look back at some of the stuff that i did too and go yeah it's pretty pretty cool yeah definitely you know for for whatever the heck it was
0: i think it's a great perspective that you have it's so humble it's, um, it says a lot about you
1: yeah and even when we were climbing in the sierras i mean we knew people had been out there he was out there in the 20s i knew in the 70s you had fisher and and uh Dang it! I'm going to forget his name. Walter Walter used to do a bunch. Of, there's so many guys out there, you know, that were out skiing things, and you know that whole Bishop scene and the whole Palisades scene, and there was a lot going on. I mean, yeah, obviously sitting here. In fact, I saw him last night. I mean, you know the exploits of Sylvester and yeah, and that whole crew. Um, you know we I, uh, we're aware of all that, mm-hmm. especially when we were ski touring. We didn't know if things had been skied before or not. We just knew that they were nice nice appealing things to ski right it's all aesthetics so. yeah
0: i think it's really important to pass that kind of brotherhood or sisterhood on right you know mm-hmm. so that it's it's vital that someone like yourself has the ability to to
1: throw that net and enlighten you know kids these coming up behind you yeah i mean you should be in you know kind of inspired by people and look at other people's uh, accomplishments and hopefully it inspires you because every time like i've never been a uh, yeah, okay, it's cool to get a first descent or something, but it's never been a drive. It's, uh, you know, if you got one, you got one. It's kind of cool.
0: It's just natural.
1: But if you got a first descent, simply because you may have been the first person ever to go up there, that's different. If You know, I used to laugh at uh, the whole the whole Alaska heli scene, first descent, first descent, whatever, dude, you're the first person there. So who cares? You know, it's not like it's, uh, you know, been, you know, climbed for 50 years and then finally one day some Yahoo decides to ski down it. <laughs> you know, that, Now that's different. <laughs> and even here in the Sierra when, you know, uh, there was a lot of great things skied and, you know, we tried to find new, interesting things to ski, but it wasn't necessarily, uh, uh, that w- it wasn't to go out and, and set new grounds just to go out and have new experiences for ourselves kind of right. s- step it up a little bit more and now with the new equipment we can move faster and and more efficiently and things that were let's say a maybe a one-day trip or two or five or six day trip shoot you can almost do in one day
0: right, right now and yeah it's kind of cool that's very cool i want to shift gears a little bit can you tell us about
1: your learn to ski initiative my Learn to Ski? Which, what part of Well, like, like uh, RG2 and okay, yeah, things of that nature. Of so um, I got involved in ski instruction through being a, a, a spokesperson for um, Learn to Snow Sport Month here in the United States, which takes place in January every year. It's a national campaign to get people out onto the hill. Hopefully not in red sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, ski instructors, man. The poor guys. Gosh, it used to be so rad to be a ski instructor. And then they just got, got beat on. <laughs> it was funny. I was looking at some old bam off track. We are looking at some pictures of the, you know, like, you know, the ski instructors doing flips after lunch, you know, in front of the lodge. Because
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that's what you do when you're a ski instructor. Right. You know, it's, we got afternoon lessons. Let's throw a couple of flips real quick, yeah. you know, get some people to sign up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Such a different era, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyways, so I got involved in uh, Learn a Snow Sport Month, but unfortunately, uh, I got myself into some situations where I was really uncomfortable because I was telling people to go take lessons from certified ski instructors, and I was not, in fact, a certified ski instructor myself, at which point I made contact with the PSIA and said, we need to, uh, you know, I, I don't have any problem representing your organization, but I just really out of place here. What can I do? You know, how do we rectify this? And they said, uh, you need to become certified. The only way to become certified is to go through the certification process. I was not given, like they do with the president, uh, you know, I was not given a, what do you call a, 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 a
0: no, you had to earn all three levels, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I went through everything, every one of my levels. Um, I wasn't given an honorary certification. My my pin is as gold as the next guy's. Because <laughs> <laughs> you put um, your pants
0: on the same and, as the next guy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Except at the end of the day, I make gold records. <laughs> <laughs> um more cowbell please uh, anyways <laughs> i became a ski instructor and uh and i had my certification and, and it was it was a wonderful process to be a part of it made my skiing better no doubt about it now granted there was a time kind of that same time with blizzard of oz where i had some big issues with psia they were dogs i mean gosh dang talk about ruining the sport right they fell they right in step have with the clue they yeah. fell right into the freaking rut with everything else, you know? I remember getting a job One I needed a pass. I'm like, oh, I'll be a ski instructor. And I remember, like, uh, you know, that ski school tryouts or whatever the heck it was. And it, I couldn't wait because it was the moguls. Like, okay, can you ski moguls? And I'm like, huh. <laughs> 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 and there's a bit of a lore, actually, down at Heavenly because one of the, instru- one of the examiners at the time kind of had a chip on his shoulder anyways. The one guy did his little demo, and I'm standing up there. And, uh, and they said, you know, you can ski it like, you know, ski it like this. And they kind of came down and did that, that weird little ski instructor mogul technique that was strange, actually. but And now I freaking lit one up, you know, competition style. And apparently the one examiner looked over to the other one. And I, I've heard the second party, but, and and it was like, or you could do it like that. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And perfect form has gone away. They realize that the psia realizes that there's a lot of different ways to ski techniques are changing in fact uh, even right now there's you know there there's there's a and i'm part of i'm certainly kind of jabbing them on this you know they need to address the 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 onslaught of people wishing to have ski touring skills right Ski instructors should not be mountain guides, but ski instructors should be able to teach the basic ski touring skills, how to put the skins on, how to put the bindings on, how to take clothes off, how to rack your skis on your backpack so that when you are in the hands of a mountain guide, the mountain guide can in fact be the guide and not teaching you how to put your skins on backwards. The fundamentals. Walking around with your, you know, I do believe that that's a ski school thing that could be taught and help the organization. You know, evolve again with with a movement within the sport, yeah. and and it's the same thing with you know, 15 years ago, you couldn't take a park lesson. The ski instructors were, in fact, not allowed to even go in the park. Where now, little Johnny comes on his ski holiday, and Mom wants little Johnny in good hands. So there's ski instructors that specifically you know deal with the park and yeah. or free ride or anything else. But you um, the story you told last yeah. night about your your
0: progression up the levels sure. was hysterical. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, I, uh, the only short circuit that I was given by PSIA, and it was per my request, was I didn't want to be attached to any specific division. If I was going to be involved in this organization, then I wanted to be, because it's a national certification, I wanted the ability to be able to move within the different divisions. One, there was a practical reason. I was, I'm busy. And two, I wanted to meet the people. I wanted to be around the organization. And so I was able to test, clinic, and be examined or be examined in basically any division that I happened to be in. Yeah, my level one was with 250 new hires in Rocky Division uh, at Breckenridge. Part of my level two, I was trained up in Pacific Northwest. Another part of my level two was done with East Division. Part of my level three was done, in fact, in the Far West Division. Another part of my level two was done in the Southeast Division. Or three, I was in Southeast Division. Clinics were done all around. I'm one children's exam away from being an examiner myself now. I'll probably do that in Central somewhere. And, and in one way, I've actually opened up some worms for open up a can of worms for other people. They're, they're allowing more unilateral flow. If you happen to be a ski instructor on the East Coast, then the, the far West recognizes your path and we'll continue to let you grow through there. Um, So in one way, I kind of maybe broke a little bit of a barrier there as far as being able to flow in between divisions. Um, Because we move, we change life, you get a job, you move here, you move there and and I had great mentors. Um, I was getting ready to flash it. I was gonna go full certain a year and I had one of my mentors pull me to the side and said, we know what you're trying to do and we know you're gonna do it, but it's not a very good message to our membership because to be very honest, People have been working on level three for very, very, very long time. And and if you really want to solidify your certification, don't do it in a year. Take a year off and it'll be better for you also. And it was. I went ahead and cliniced more and became more involved. And, and when I did get my level three, um, it, it, yeah, it did mean a lot more at that point than it would have had a flash. But anyways, jump forward. Uh, after the Manislu accident in 2012... Greg Costa was my partner, who I lost, and uh, he was a French ski instructor, and we had great conversations because the French system is very different than our system. In the French system, you're either full cert or nothing. There is no level two in this in the French system, basically because of they got a lot of people uh, that want to be ski instructors. They got a real a lot of talented skiers also. So the only way to weed that out is you're either there or you're not. And We'd get in big arguments. And he would, he would agree with me most of the time, and I, and I will say that I I probably would rather take a lesson from a level a really really passionate level two skier who just loves ski instruction and he's been teaching for thirty years and he just he's just one of those skiers he freaking loves it versus some ex Noram racer that. Didn't quite make it, and he's a ski instructor because he's got nothing else to do. <laughs> he's just pissed, <laughs> which is unfortunately a lot of the of the European ski instructors. And uh, in fact, I had we have this book called Core Concepts, and it's about the guest experience. And I remember Greg looking at, it going, "This is really interesting." <laughs> I'm like, "You don't deal with any of that?" He's like, "No." <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah, guest experience. Imagine that. I had a lot of fun talking to Greg about my path as I was becoming a certified ski instructor. At the same time, Remy, another great skiing friend of mine, Remy Lecluse, who also unfortunately lost his life on Mass Slew. Remy got his guides pin the year we filmed Blizzard of Oz. So, says a lot. Our relationship together was really strange because Remy loved my skiing. He would love that I'd like do a helicopter or a flip or something off of something. And he's like, what the hell would you do? um, You know, just for fun. And at the same time, you know, here we are, French high altitude mountain guide. Super cool. Our time together was awesome. We both loved, uh, loved to get into uh, conversations that ultimately had no end, but we, we had them anyways. And you guys did some big stuff together. Yeah, a lot of time together. Before Monteslo Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, great South expeditions and- to South America, great expeditions to India. Bunch of stuff in the Alps also, actually, banging around the Alps. A lot of cool things on the Italian side. And um, when the two of them passed, I uh, felt that I needed to do something for myself, kind of. I mean, you have all this stuff that goes through your head whenever a friend dies. We're going to start this. We're going to found Man... I mean, let's face it. Life goes on, and and, and I don't want to sound hard, but it's true. Know, life goes on. Yeah. And then I caught wind of a project of a of a man who has done a lot of uh, goodwill. I'm not even going to say charity, just goodwill stuff in Nepal. He was uh, Jean Michel was the first person to actually take a mountain bike to Nepal back in like '81. No way. And rode the Himalayan Trail. Sick. Yeah, super cool. Yeah. He's done some massive, kind of unknown things that ultimately had some big influence on on uh, on the country. And I had heard about a project of him wanting to do a um, introduction to skiing in Nepal. In Nepal, and it wasn't. To develop skiing, in fact, I've had to shut some critics up. I, it was not to develop ski tourism in Nepal.
0: No, it was to give back this this to the to locals, right?
1: Teach the mountain guides. So when the Nepalese Mountain Guides Association was brought into the IFMGA, skiing was not a discipline that was required in every other country in the world. Not every, because Ecuador is not, Bolivia is not, Morocco is not. Actually, I'm not even sure Morocco's in. Anyways, so we all go over to Nepal and we're all Westerners and we all climb mountains and we do all this stuff and then we all leave and, and yet the as the Nepalese were gaining their independence, they're also gaining responsibility, they're gaining individuality. There's a lot of companies now that are in fact Nepalese owned doing their own expeditions and this power of leadership and we and I'm not gonna talk about the the, the accidents that have happened simply because the member demanded to go to the top, and the and the high altitude porter just walked himself into the death zone because the client said so, mm-hmm. even though he knew darn well that they were never ever going to return. And unfortunately, they're kind of a you know they're a servant, they're sub you know a subservient society. Sorry, right. it's just the way it is. So you took the influence of Remy as a mountain guide. So I took Remy's and Greg. <laughs> exactly Remy's. Yeah. So I catch I catch wind of this project of they're going to teach the Nepalese Aspirant Mountain Guide, some skiing skills. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a second. Uh, my friend that worked for Plume was telling me about it because Plume was telling... I'm like, oh, no, no, put me in touch with this guy right now. So I call him, hey, man, what's up? This is Glenn, da, 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 da. What's going on? Who is your ski instructor? And he goes, I, I, I actually don't have a ski instructor at the moment. And I'm like, done. Tell me the dates. I'll see you there. <laughs> like, don't even... I will not call you back. This is a done deal. (laughs) Right. I've signed. Um, And I literally hijacked John Michelle's project. (laughs) It was kind of, I feel bad in a way. And the next thing you know, he had already had the skis shipped over. He had already had the equipment. It had been something that he had been working on for three years with the Nepalese Guides Association and what have you. And and so, yes, in loose form, I took... um, you know, Greg, the ski instructor, Remy, the high altitude mountain guide and, uh, and, and myself. And I thought, this is OK. This is it. This is my, you know, after the accident, you have all those daydreams and things you think about you want to do. I'm getting ready to do this. And so I took um, eight uh, aspirant mountain guides. So they are, in fact, very highly trained. They are in responsible leadership positions. They are on their own path for certification So I'm not just, I didn't just grab some guys off the street. This was not a social event from the standpoint, we didn't throw a party. We didn't throw, yeah, come ski, woo, ski festival. No, this was a very, very technically oriented introduction to skiing skills. And
0: specifically a give back.
1: And specifically for their use as high mountain, high altitude mountain guides for the purpose of emergency situation, for the purpose of, access when on foot travel is very very difficult and and it really put me is this and now okay i'm not a ski instructor i don't go to lineup i'm not gonna go to lineup but i am in fact a ski instructor and it was really cool to take all of and it was a big challenge um, for me to take everything that i learned in all of my ski school training and apply it into this completely new realm of I'm teaching these guys. These guys have never touched ski. They didn't know the tip from the tail. Right. You know they they seriously. You know so. Every, and some of these guys have been on Everest. Uh yeah, Zhang Bu had already been on Everest three times. Yeah, but not skied ever. But never skied ever. Uh In fact, um, Zhang Bu was interesting because he was actually on Manaslu and watched us moving up and back and forth from the camps. And they would all sit there and be like those guys just went to camp three and they're already back you know I mean and you know to beat a Nepalese in the mountains is they take note trust yeah, me right I'm sure <laughs> and we were you know faster than them on numerous occasions right so uh, we did uh, we did the, the the first Nepalese guide project and it, and I, my favorite story on the first thing on uh, so we do a dry land training and again I'm a beginner ski school and that's all it is', is beginner ski school but you these guys are hiking up they're not there's no lift. No, 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 no. There's no lift, and contrary to what people think, ne- Nepal will never be a skiing country. Yeah. Because the first night of your ski vacation is going to be at four or five hundred meters. Right. You're teaching your these guys. Gonna hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't <laughs> going to be a good vacation. You're teaching no. these guys at sixteen thousand feet. Yep. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Minim- minimums of that, and then going up from there. Yeah. um So yeah, I mean, it was really funny because I mean, I had to get there a week early. They were all coming off of Amida Blom season Mm -hmm. because I do it in the fall. I I, I, got to do it when they're not working because I don't want it to cost them anything other than their time. And so most of the time we do it kind of ap- right after Blom season. And then we kind of, we work together for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Although it looks like I'm going to go to Langtang this year and try to do a midwinter one and use uh, winter snow instead of permanent snows. Yeah. So you get them in, you get them in their gear, you teach them how to use their boots, you teach them how to put the skins on and we have this like kind of dry land day and we finally get on the hill and, and we're going up the very first slope that we had to go up. It was funny. because the first three days of that session, we'd skin all up and it, there was this little plateau where I kind of had my little. It's hard to find a little a learn-to-ski area for a first time. I mean, I need a flat spot, you know, <laughs> and it's not really easy to find. And then we actually would have to walk down in the, in the afternoon because they didn't have the ability to get down. But these, and by the way, they're skinning so good, man. They got French kicks. They're just, oh, gosh, they're so good. And we go up this, like, weird kind of scree field that didn't have much snow on it. And, and we get to the top, and, and Sonam says, how come... Mountaineering's been around for like you know fifty, sixty years in Nepal or even more. How come nobody's ever taught us how to ski? <laughs> and, what the heck? And I was like, well, cause the British kind of taught you guys how to climb mountain and the British don't know how to ski. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't really get the joke, but i I laughed at myself. But anyways, um, they loved it. They immediately realized that skis can can make their movement easier. I am constantly questioning them. When could you use your skis? Where could you use your skis? Name a place for me to use your skis. You know, I'm constantly getting these guys to think about whether one guy on a pair of skis, when they're putting in fixed lines, will make the whole teams better. Right. One guy up front on the skis, it's going to be safer and it's going to be more efficient and the rest of the team's going to have an easier path because they'll be walking in the ski track right will there ever be a skiing guide in nepal maybe if they ever actually have to get to the to the physical requirements um of of being a ski guide so next year so i i do that one that works great we end up doing another one that's super cool and i've got these guys i mean they're they're starting to kind of figure it out i ain't telling them how to put their gear on or nothing like that. I'm, you know, um, They're doing their own things. I'm giving them PSIA books to read, fundamentals. And it, it inspires me to go get my examiner's pin because it's my immediate quest, dream, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, to give uh, one of them a level one, maybe a couple of them, a level one pin, a real one. I'm going to make them earn it. I mean, I'm going to put them through the exam right, so that they can teach their friends because every pair of skis and equipment that I leave in, in Nepal – I leave an extra pair also, because you can't ski, you you want to have a, a friend to go ski with. So uh, there's um about a dozen pair, twenty four pairs of skis um, in Nepal right now in the hands of individuals who have gone through the program and will continue to go through the program and and now it's looking like I'm going to go ahead and bring two or three let's say students to America. Cool and actually put them on chairlifts for the first time of their life where I can accelerate their learning. Mm -hmm. It's important to me to show them how they could use skis in their own country. There's been other projects and programs where they've put Nepalese on skis. The the French ENSAs had them come to Chamonix and they've they've gone through some ski-type programs, but then they go back to Nepal and it it isn't utilized in any Mm -hmm. way. I'm trying to do it in their own country so they can put it on their own terms on whether they could use these things or not. Right. It's a snowy country, but all the snow is up very, very, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's uh, you think Nepal's got a lot of snow. It actually doesn't.
0: Yeah. Well, do you, do you think that? So it's been pretty funny. So yeah, that's, anyways, i awesome. start
1: RG2. It's a nonprofit, and that, that I, stands that for... I, it stands for Remy, Greg, and Glenn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's not something that I, you know, it's not the only thing I do, of course. But, but I, it was a great way to honor them, it sounds like. Yeah, it's cool. And again, and and the guys know, I tell the story, you know, I mean, they know my history. When I, when I'm, you know, bringing on a, when, last year we had three new students come into the group and yeah, they kind of know the story and why. And, you know, these are, these are young... These are not the porters that we see on National Geographic films. These guys are full on passionate. One of my students last year did not wasn't able to attend because he was competing in the national ice climbing championships. I was teasing them all for trying to get jobs as ski models, you know, I'd take all these pictures of them because they're climbing in, you know, in brand new gear. These are this is not again, this is not National Geographic climbing up mountains with the sandals on. Um, these guys are young energetic, aspirant mountain guides working for their IFMGA certifications. Right. And they're in leadership roles. They are... The future. They are the future of Nepalese mountaineering, without a doubt.
0: Well, and it's interesting to me because we talk a lot about how, as a mountain person, we process loss, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a picture of Kip on my wall, you Mm -hmm. know? So it can always keep that at the forefront of how I live my life. But that seems to be such an awesome... Way to have done that after losing those guys,
1: because that was—I mean, it, it just—we always, anytime we'd be on expedition, Remy was always really like, "We need to hire a local guide." And I'm like, "Like, it wasn't so we could necessarily get up the mountain." It was—he was—it was always like, "No, just so that we can—they can be around us. Right. They need to be around us. They need to see what we're doing. Mm-hmm. They need to know what we're doing." I mean, you—you you, know—they—they—they'd have a rope, but they have no idea how to use it. They right. just had a rope. You know? Do you
0: think that came from his guiding profession or something?
1: Yeah, no, it came from his guiding profession, and it came from him enjoying travel. Remy loved travel; yeah. he loved it more than anything. As did Greg. Mm-hmm. I mean, Greg was so funny. We get first time I get to Kathmandu with Greg, and he's like, "Come on, we got to go to the to the salon." And I'm like, walking around, I'm like, "Dude, I've been married for a long time. I don't know. I don't need a massage. What are you? Where are we going? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but we're walking into kind of a strange part of town." And he's like, yeah, I got I left all my stuff with some girls here, and I'm like, oh gosh, come on, Greg. <laughs> I mean, you're you're 24, dude. I'm I'm a little older than you, and I just, I, and and sure enough, you know, I I end up at this hair cutting salon where after um, Daligheri he ended up needing a haircut and ended up, you know, hooking up with these girls and, and got his hair cut and come to find out it was a place and he had left a bunch of expedition barrels, you know, in, in, it downstairs in this, in this, you know, in this neighborhood haircutting salon. And it was just super cool, you know, his ability to, to morph into the community. And I'm, i I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I just got done racing the Baja 1000 and I've been racing down there a lot and I know a lot of the Mexican teams. I hang out with the Mexican teams way more than I hang out with any of the American teams. I've spent a lot of nights out in the desert while everyone's going to the hotels. I'm, you know, sleeping in the back of the truck with, with, you know, some of my Mexican buddies and, uh, and Greg was way into, you know, being a part of wherever he was and, and Remy was too. you know, really integrating into that. I mean, there's, there's a couple of different ways to travel the world. You can be the big dumb I mean I'll call it what it is you can be the dumb American Mm -hmm. (laughs) or you can you know fit in and be cool and and just kind of hang out and enjoy it and and maybe learn something and and experience something that you're not gonna you're not gonna if you go the other way right so being uh being able to integrate into the Nepalese a little bit and be with them and tell some stories and and hear their stories and watch their developments and something cool and and it gives me something to do as I go on life, too. Do I want to go climb and ski unskied very, very steep, dangerous lines the rest of my life? Nah, probably not. Uh, do I want to go on expedition in Nepal and, and go to high altitudes and, and, and be in the mountain environment that I love so much? Yes, absolutely. Is my drive, like I say, to go do something that's never been done? yeah whatever if it comes it comes but being over there and and being able to part you know kind of be a part of the ski school is kind of cool it's it, it's it, i'm still on expedition i'm still doing high altitude but i'm i'd say my drive's a little bit different although i did see a line on chula the other last year that like certainly if conditions are in i'm gonna go ski it <laughs> yeah yeah No. It certainly cool. changed my drive a little bit i, I i'm pretty good friends with andy parkin and, and you know, Andy uh, spends a lot of time over there and again, uh, you know, here's certainly somebody who lived, made it. He made it. He he lived somehow. And uh and now, you know, just to see him not necessarily change his uh his itineraries, but maybe he's changing his focus a little bit as right. he travels around the world. Evolving. A little
0: bit, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a Peter Croftism that when you start climbing or skiing, it's about the numbers and, you know, the the ego component of it. And then as you age or get more vested in the sport, it becomes about numbers, but also about the place. And then ultimately it becomes about who you're with.
1: Sure. And everything else
0: is backseat, you know. It sounds like that's the path you're on.
1: Yeah, I've always kind of lived by this bit of a slogan that, you know, to evolve, you must be involved. As long as I'm involved, I'm going to evolve somehow or another. I don't know necessarily know where right. or how. I mean, it's nice to be on angle, don't get me wrong. It's nice to have the ability to do that. But at the same time, it's nice to just go through expedition life and and uh, figure it out and go travel through weird things. and
0: Right. Well, it seems like that's at the root of kind of the down-home tour mentality too which i think it, it, that thing can't get enough press in my mind oh gosh you know, for you as glenn Plake to say to me yeah we're gonna go live on the east coast for two months this winter you know to us california ski snobs yeah you know it's so awesome
1: yeah down home tours uh, a whole nother monster in my world i guess it's um
0: but you're always giving back it seems to me
1: I don't try to. That's the funny thing. I don't really see it as giving back. I'm just it's just who you are. Just doing my thing. I'm just trying to have other experiences, I guess, to talk about. I mean, I am not supposed to be here. <laughs> and I'll probably lose it talking about this, but uh, yeah, man. <laughs> But you're here. I mean, I was freaking shoulder to shoulder to somebody who's vanished off the face of the earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, and to be honest, it hasn't really changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird because you go, whoa, what the heck? You know, it's supposed to change. It really hasn't changed my life. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I hate to be hardened and I'm not. So, yeah, we're doing the same dang things we've always kind of been doing. And I did the down-home tour for my honeymoon. We used our honeymoon as an excuse because I needed a lot of time off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, it's my honeymoon. Don't bother me. (laughs) And honestly, all we did was go um, skiing. And then we did more of them. Then we did more of them. And, you know, is it my way to say thanks? Yeah, probably so. I guess deep down in heart... It's the way to say thanks for everything that I've got. I had jobs, you know prior to that, but I mean everything we have if if material things are a way to measure where you are in one way or another, everything I have is because of skiing, right? I have not earned any money any other way.
0: but I love um, the fact that you're tremendously
1: and, open about that and say <laughs> and you're grateful for it. No, absolutely. so like the down home tour is. Is it commercial? No, the intent is not to be commercial. Um, Just organic. Ultimately was, has it been probably the largest promotional thing I've ever done? Yeah, probably. (laughs) But it doesn't, I'm not, I didn't do it like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do this. And then everybody's going to, you know, no, that's, that's, that was never the intent of it. And, and still to this day, isn't the intent. You just go hang out, you ski with people. It's a lot of work. I mean, living, living in, in the truck 24 seven, um, even with our the truck we have now which is by no means a hard thing to live in but it's still it's a complicated life it's not yeah i love in fact this year we actually went on a motorhome trip down to southern utah we're like this whole like motorhome thing's kind of cool because we're normally dealing with you know freezing temperatures Mm -hmm. snowy roads constantly monitoring the systems so that the truck doesn't go down versus um like being in typical snowbird country, you know, like wow, this is cool. Right. <laughs> like, no, leave the door open. Huh? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're you know constantly going. The motor, you know, our truck has never been uh, uh, a party place. It's never been a rock star van. It's uh, it's where we operate. It's it's our home. It's how we move around. Well,
0: I think the cool thing too, by not commercializing it, and having it come from a place of total passion mm-hmm. and sorry, like it's sto- it's you're still stoking out hundreds of thousands of people. It's really fun. I hope you realize that. No, it's myself fun, really. included. Like <laughs> those movies got my ass to California. It's super fun. <laughs> that's where the good shit happens to me when you yeah. don't commercialize it. And the beauty is it all comes full circle.
1: It's yeah. It's just skiing is a dumb hick sport that takes place at the end of a dirt road in some po dunk town you've never heard of. Period. That's it. Sorry. And we can look at the fancy ski areas that have become ski resorts, but strip them down to what they are. And it's some dumb podunk town at the end of the dirt road you've never heard of. Right. That you started hearing of because they, you know, put the ski area there. But we can go down the list of the big fancy ones, um, or we can go. To the list of ones you've never heard of, and there's the funny little ski areas, uh, which there again, I think without a doubt, there's a, a huge line between the ski resort and the ski area. No doubt about it. Some ski resorts still kind of can walk the line of being a ski area, based upon maybe some hotel development and what have you. They certainly in the they are ski resorts, but they still have that flavor of the ski area. Fortunately, but it's a very very hard line to walk. Now we go back to some of the smaller little neighborhood and community ski hills and ski areas on um, their little, you know, community centers. I mean, they're, right. uh, there it's where it went, goes down. You know, you get into Pennsylvania and you start skiing the local hills there and you just realize how, how integrated into the community that those, those recreational areas are. It's a gathering place. It's super cool. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's, it's, it's like the local church or the softball club or, You know, any other thing um, that communities do together, Uh, they got that dang ski hill. And I wish they were more, I personally wish they were even more integrated. I wish we could back up a little bit. I I mean, if I could split the industry in half, I would. I, I would love to because I think the ski resort industry is putting a lot of pressure on the ski area owners. And they have to, they feel like they have to, you know, rise to that level. And they don't, and right. they shouldn't have to. Yeah. Um, they can't actually. They don't have the geographic benefits to allow them to do that. Right. Um, so some of the operating modes of some of the ski areas could probably be changed to make the local ski hills be a lot more fun and and um, maybe a lot easier to operate. And but again, they're in the pressure of the ski area or the ski resort that has this big voice and is what everybody's interpretation of the skiing experience. And, right.
0: Well, I love the fact that last night you're telling me the first stop on the tour this year is in Cleveland.
1: Uh, Yeah, Cleveland, maybe Indiana, depends. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. I had no idea that skiing even existed there. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's awesome. I always, it's my, so uh, yeah, trivia question. Name the state with the most ski areas. I'd probably guess somewhere in New England.
0: But it's probably something random, like Michigan.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you're close. You're really close, actually. Uh, It's New York. Western New York. Yeah. Yeah. New York's got the most ski areas, more than anybody. I haven't looked at recent tallies, but number two is either Pennsylvania or Michigan. Yeah. Um, Dude, I remember sleeping- California is actually third, usually, give or take. I
0: remember sleeping in the parking lot at Camelback. Yeah. As a college kid. Yeah.
1: Pennsylvania's got a lot of ski areas, yeah, and a lot of keen skiing. It's yeah. trippy.
0: It is trippy. Yeah, it's really
1: funny. And then Pensil- you know, then the, the the demographics of Pennsylvania. I mean, Northern Pennsylvania, Southern Pennsylvania. anybody knows what I'm talking about knows what I'm talking about. Totally. Um, it's really funny. It's an interesting state, and and then obviously with all the skiing in it, and whether you're you know down in the Whitetail area or you're, you know up in uh, up in Elk or. Mm-hmm. or like say Camelback area, I mean, yeah. it's it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's a funny state. Well, it's
0: great to have those Euro vibes just from the ancestral. Oh yeah, you know, yeah ties. Yeah. It's yeah. great. But
1: no, down home tours, a trip kind of came from me hearing about ski areas where people were from, and I, and it was just my general curiosity that right. I got to go see these places. Right, I'm sick of hearing about them. I want to go see them. I want to go hang out with them. Yeah, I want to go ski with the people. I was doing a bunch of promos. I'd be at a ski shop. I'd be at a, you know, a ski show or something. And I kept hearing about these places and where they skied. And and, and it, I had to go see it for myself.
0: Oh, kudos for you. Man. And that's
1: what, that's what started the down-home tour. And, it and was... then we did a bunch of them, you know, cause now we, now we can turn around. Okay. We're talking specifically about the East, but I did down-home tour Southwest. Uh-huh. I went and skied every ski area in Arizona and New Mexico. Which is a whole nother crazy world of skiing that nobody knows about. I'm sure. There's such a cool ski scene down there, whether it's some of the ski areas on the reservation or your ski, you know, ski Apache there down Rio Dosa area, or your, um, you know, obviously the Taos, Powderito and all that area. That's a whole nother scene. All of a sudden, the little ski area up on top of Mount Lemmon. You're like, what the heck? It's super (laughs) freaking cool. And then turn around and and, uh, the Pacific Northwest. Again, we did, we called the wet spot tour because, you know, let's face it, it's wet up there. But, you know, we did all the ski areas in, in Oregon, did all the ski areas in Washington, uh, skied the uh, Idaho Panhandle. I mean, there's, a, a, again, a, this massive... I mean, there's just shy of 50 ski areas between those three states right. that you've never heard of or yeah. maybe you've heard of, but mo- they're down-home ski areas. Yeah. Well,
0: I love the, just the the whole down-home vibe. Last night we were there... I mean, you're signing posters like Cal Ripken style to the bitter end, and it's, and it's it's five of us there, and one dude, our friend Daniel, is from North Carolina, yeah, and he's asking you about this folklore story about you hot-wiring a cat and building a kicker, you know? I mean, that's those are the kind of things that come out of that
1: yeah, type it's, of initiative. It, almost a day doesn't go by where somebody will reference a down-home tour stop. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool, like, for me the you know, let's face it, America is a big country. <laughs> and I, I'm proud to say that I've been just about everywhere in it, and it's always been chasing a ski area. Right. You know, I've, I've skied in Georgia. I've skied in Alabama, there's a ski area. <laughs> Cloudmont, Alabama. <No> way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like this weird little holler that... I make snow in. Yeah, it's been a really fun way for me to travel around the country. Now, our first one was funny because it was our honeymoon. So we went to like, you know, Mount Rushmore. We right. went to Niagara Falls and we got a picture of us in a heart-shaped tub in the Poconos. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really funny. You know, we did all those stupid things. But yeah, it's just a great way to see the country for us. It gives us a reason to turn yeah. down that road yeah. instead of just, you know, continue on down wherever. And then, and then you run into the, the people that you... That ski every day, right? And the real skiers. Again, they, who's skiing on a Tuesday afternoon in the rain in West Virginia? In the rain, in West Virginia. There you go. The real skiers. You know, it yeah. might be ski school, might be some ski patroller, it might be who knows who it's going to. Be. Might be some people on vacation that came right. down from D.C.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't know, and I and that's who we go ski with. Yeah, that's awesome. It's really fun. So, uh, can we talk about Kimberly? Yeah. Yes, absolutely.
0: Because. I dealt with her primarily in the lead-in to you <laughs> yeah. coming. And when you guys walked into the venue and I turned around last night, like there's Glenn Plake, yeah. right? And there's Glenn Plake's stardom skier vibe. But then there's this equally powerful woman mm-hmm. with you. yeah, and you, She's, got, uh, and you guys are about to have anniversary.
1: Yeah, Kimberly's amazing. I met her uh, at a ski promo, of all things. It was one of those deals. I'd been coast-to-coast coast three times in a week. And the last thing that I wanted to do was be at an après ski party. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to bed so bad. I mean, I was done, man. It had been a long week. It was the middle of, you know, it was the end of November run. And, oh, man. And I found myself at a demo day at Stratton, Vermont, of all places, flatten And, um... (laughs) I had the obligation to draw the name out of the hat for the free pair of skis at the Apres ski party. And the at the time, the binding guys, you know, were all, they had been chatting up every girl because, you know, you had to go get your bindings adjusted. And, and they're, come on, Glenn. You know, one thing, one of the things that led me to quit drinking is that, You know, I'd go to parties every day. (laughs) And I'm like... There's a fork in the road. I can't drink every day, you guys. I'm actually an athlete, supposedly. (laughs) You're going to have a big one tonight and go to bed and go, man, you wouldn't believe how left up we got last night. Um, I've got to go to the next one. (laughs) Right. The next day. Um, And the next one. And the next one. Anyways, they... Collared me into, you know, going to this Apres ski party. And and the next thing you know, we're chatting up a couple girls. And one of them happens to be Kimberly. And she had driven a friend of hers who didn't have a driver's license up to the demo day because she wanted to meet me. <laughs> and uh, and Kimberly was like, yeah, I'll drive. I, I like to ski. She grew up skiing in the Texas ski clubs uh, or the, uh, the Texas church ski clubs. As a skier, mm-hmm. you know, Texan skier, we, we laugh and certainly anybody from Colorado definitely has their Texan jokes. But the reality is, is uh, a lot of Texans ski. In fact, I think at one point there was like demographically, they were the most skiing state in the union or something per yeah, capita. I think
0: followed by Georgia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just
1: everybody there has yeah. skied or does ski. It's a pretty interesting uh, statistic. Yeah. Um, Talk shit, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, right? it's pretty cool. <laughs> Anyways, I'm at this party and I'm, I'm over it, man. I cannot wait to go to bed. The uh-huh. Next thing you know, I'm I'm talking to this to this girl, and and uh, I finally uh, said, "Can can we get out of here?" I'm actually kind of hungry. We went and and had a had a meal together, just adjacent to the party, and and then it was like ten o'clock, and they kind of called it a night. And I kind of remembered her name was about it mm-hmm. actually. Well, the next morning, um, I woke up and I, I kind of rejuvenated. I had met this girl last night. And I was kind of excited to see her. And all of a sudden they're, where'd those girls go that were here yesterday? Oh, I think they, didn't they leave last night? They had to get back. What? what? And so, uh, kind of got a, a little stocky, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I went, I went and found the registration cards to the uh, demo day that they had to fill out. And I had some help with some of the binding, uh, reps. I was like, where's the cards from yesterday? You know, those girls that were here, where's their card? and next thing you know i had basically all her personal information the shop that she was associated with and everything i kind of needed to know to track her down in the immediate future which came very quickly the very next that same day mike hatrip had to go uh uh, he was late for an airplane ride uh back in those days i didn't have any credit cards or anything like that so renting a car was not my option Hatrip always was a little more sophisticated than I was a couple of years ahead of me. (laughs) And he had rented this car and I talked to him unbeknownst to him. I'm like, dude, you're late for your plane. (laughs) You look, I'll take your rental car back. (laughs) You make this flight. My flight's not for several hours. We'll be good. I dropped him off at the airport. I had already called the ski shop and asked if there's a girl named Kimberly that works there. And they said, yeah, we actually are having an employee meeting uh, this evening or some sort of thing. And I'm like, all right, cool. And I talked to another guy. Hey, so how far is this? And he's like, it's four hours away. It's down by right. the city. And wait, what year is this? 89, 90, 80 early 90s, 80, 88. Okay. Anyways, I, um, I drove to this ski shop that she was working at. She had come off of a modeling job. Kimberly was a Texas beauty queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, that led her into modeling and she'd been around the world doing some modeling and, and found herself in New York city and wanted to ski because she was a skier and got a job at a local ski shop down, you know, in the neighborhood she was living in. And, and one thing led to another and that's how got her up to that demo day. And now all of a sudden she's at the ski shop. So I walk in, Hey, I'm I'm looking for Kimberly and everybody's like, "Uh, wait a minute. Why is Glenn Plake in our (laughs) ski shop? Anyways. We uh, spent the weekend together, met each other officially, so to speak, yeah. uh, exchanged each other's uh, information officially. And in a very short amount of time, started kind of doing some long distance dating. And because she was kind of a nomad, I was a bit of a nomad. We started traveling together. Yeah, it was one of those, I guess, I long story. Again, we have to go back to All I wanted to do was go to bed. Right. I did not want to go to a freaking party to save my life. Right. And I guess what good. I'm trying to say is, I end up meeting my my wife. <laughs> right? It's good you stuck it out. I was definitely not looking for love. Yeah, it was the last thing on my <laughs> mind. <laughs> well, that's when it happens. They say, right? Exactly. Yeah, here we are. Um, almost 30 been together years together ever since. Uh, I mean, we've been with each other. We live with each other constantly. Um, the only time I think I'm not around Kimberly is when I'm on Expedition and stuff. and yeah. I take off for months at a time. Kimberly's amazing. Um, her father never had boys, so she got a motorcycle for her seventh birthday. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, like I said, she's a Texas beauty queen, so um, she loves being a girl, which I love. I love her being a girl. She walks around Chamonix with stilettos on. Mm-hmm and i know a lot of the girls in the community appreciate kimberly's insistence on being a woman in a male-oriented alpine driven town right and i think some of the other girls are love it when they put their dang stilettos Mm -hmm. on and get to be girls also instead of wearing the typical guides uniform that we (laughs) that they're expected to be wearing in that in that community i can't say enough about her being a lady, uh, being a woman in a world that I don't want to say her glamour, but yes, there is glamour involved in her. And I I, I love every bit of it. At the same time, um, you know, being, she's incredibly athletic. She's very accomplished water skier. She over the years has become a very accomplished skier. She's in fact a level three certified instructor. Also her ability to have a good time on the mountain has influenced a bunch of other ladies especially in recent years she's been kind of the gang leader of some groups that have been going over to europe and skiing the Haute route these ladies were they would have fallen into the um you know the country club-esque ski world and in fact you know they're calling me up what ultralight ice axe they should be taking on this trip <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and it's because of kimberly's ability to influence them she's um,
0: she's an inspiring person
1: and uh, for me, yes, she does uh, run my road show. Uh, you know, we kind of laugh like I'm an artist, you know, and she's the, <laughs> she's the engineer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Partnerships gotta feel good.
1: Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, it's just wonderful. I mean, and and our relationship is very strange. I mean, we literally spend 24 hours together. Right. It's quite interesting, actually. It's very odd, actually. We are constantly together. Right. It seems like. Doing different things, and and again, I I can't say enough how how proud I am. Kimberly's name's on the door of the truck because she's the one that drives it most of the time, mm-hmm. especially on the long drives. I mean, right. I might be skiing all day and signing autographs all night, and I don't have the ability to drive to the next ski area, and she does. Right. We just finished, like I said, I just finished the Baja One Thousand, and and she's a really talented driver with like trailers and trucks and things. <laughs> it makes no sense, but she is. <laughs> And I just love it, you know. She'll she'll be down there, and you in the in the machismo of of F three fifties with trailers and stuff. Right. Kimberly's like, yeah, whatever, you know. She's you know, a Texas beauty she queen, pulls her, her weight. <laughs> you know, she ain't throw ain't afraid to throw down there. It's really right. cool. And and then like literally be sitting on the back of the trailer in a bikini, getting a suntan um, <laughs> in the middle of Mexico. Where people are all worried about, oh, the damn Mexicans, you know, they'll steal everything or right. whatever. You know, I mean, your typical BS. And yeah. she's like, you guys should mellow out. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's pretty well, cool. Uh, obviously. It's special. Yeah, we're getting, again, we're nearing 30 years together. That's yeah. crazy to think about. Well,
0: and the reason I ask is I think it's an adage for a reason that behind every good man's a better woman. Boom. And I, and for I, sure. I think. You guys exemplify that, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm proud to say that I've influenced her also. I mean, she's, you know, I think certainly that's, a, that's the adage, and I will agree wholeheartedly. I think she's a better woman because of the things that I was, that that we've done together, I guess. Yeah, it's a two-way that's way better street. better way to do it. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. It's a two-way street. Yeah,
0: oh, that's awesome. You've won multiple hot dog skiing championships. You've uh-huh. been on, you had a stint on the U.S mogul team Mm -hmm. you traveled the world done amazing things (laughs) where and how do you want to be remembered
1: i don't know (laughs) or where do you see yourself in 20 years uh i don't know i really i mean obviously i'm gonna have my physical ability still i want to be able to you know continue to do the things that i do i want to continue to have my interest i don't have a list i don't have anything honestly just keep traveling and skiing. I just keep doing my thing. Um, again, I, I touched briefly, I have no plan. Um, and obviously, the plan is not in my hands. I've been shown that time and time again. You make plans for the future, and then all of a sudden, the plans change. In, in recent time, you know, I'm hosting this television show on History Channel now. You know, it's a four-wheel drive truck competition show. What the heck? How did you get involved in that? Well, just a friend of a friend made a phone call and a a, a Skype interview later leads to a personal interview. And two weeks later, I'm standing in a quarry in Georgia watching the five pickup trucks head my way. And the winner's going to take away 10 grand. And I'm one of their mentors. (laughs) Where does that leave me? I don't know. Um, You know, I'm involved in network television right now. It's kind of interesting. Um, But at the same time, I'm involved in network television as... And I'm still like Glenn the skier. I'm still Glenn the mountaineer. I'm still Glenn the whatever the heck I am. Do I want that to continue and and develop into something even more? Absolutely. I think it'd be really cool. Where does that leave me in 20 years? I still don't know. Um, You know? Yeah, there's things that I would love to do. I'd love to share... I would love to make a map, but I can't. Uh, I can't at the moment. But I would love to print a map and say, this is what I did in my life.
2: hmm
1: <laughs> And uh, does not le- necessarily lead to a treasure chest or anything else, but here's the map. Go, <laughs> go, do, go figure it out. <laughs> Paints a pretty rad picture. Because I would like... love to say, here, have my life. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say that but I would love to do it. I would love to be able to say here. Here here.
0: Well, I yeah. think you you have the answer to it, right? You have it. You have your life in those containers and <laughs> oh, gosh, when there's... the Glen Plake Memorial <laughs> Ski Museum is created and oh, people gosh. just
1: pull in. Hopefully it's not a memorial ski museum but <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, if that happens, just burn it all, please. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I uh, I we're just going to keep banging along. Yeah. Kind of let the skis skis point the directions and, and, and take opportunities. I mean, That's, I've crossed a lot of thresholds. I've walked through doors with no intent of ever going back through them. And uh, they've had effects on my life. They've caused distractions in my life, whatever. But if an opportunity presents itself, chances are you've created that opportunity. Yeah, luck is somewhat involved here and there, but... Somewhere along the way, you've influenced that opportunity to become a choice that you need to make. And I've always kind of made that choice and taken it for better, for worse. I'm not afraid to go, yeah, cool, let's go that way. Whether it was decisions that I needed to make uh, in sponsorship relationships or decisions we needed to make on the call on the weather or career opportunities. I, th- I think it's okay to walk through those, over those thresholds without ever looking back. Just freaking go for it. Heck with it. Whether it was getting on that airplane to go to Chamonix or, or getting on the airplane to come back from Chamonix, dealing with some of my early sponsors and the opportunities that they gave me. Hey, go to this ski shop and do a promotion. Okay, cool. I, I actually was, I yelled at a couple of kids one time. They said, well, yeah, it's easy for you to sit and sign autographs. Look at all these people coming up to you and they want your autograph. I'm like, yes, okay, cool. Who were the people that wanted my autograph when I got my very first pair of skis and I was at Boreal helping the local ski rep there and he introduced me as, Glenn just won the regional championships here and you guys should go ski with him. And I was proud to say, look, man, that's me. Like, I'm Look, I'm in the magazine. Do you mind if I sign this for you? I mean, I'm trying, I'm not being boisterous. I'm, we all look at dang magazines to, to be inspired by something. Now all of a sudden you got the guy that's in the damn picture that you got hanging on your wall and you don't expect him to offer his autograph to it. Why do you even have it hanging on your wall then? Right. And I'm not being like, check me out. That's Mm -hmm. never was my intent. Uh, I just want to, let's say, make that Okay, it, it, it becomes life. You have you have the picture gets printed, the picture gets hung on the wall. It doesn't have a heartbeat until I sign it. Now we got 3D. Now we're living in a 3D world. And that thing will hang on your wall forever and it now has a life because it means something to you because we met each other. The, all an autograph is is proof that you and me had some sort of interaction together. Right. And I take it dead serious. Every one of them I sign. And over the years, yes, I've signed hundreds of thousands of autographs and i've sat and watched some other athletes like be like not into it and i'm like what then you need to go you're you ain't figuring it out dude that's that's (laughs) that's your job to do that that's what this whole thing is all about you are an inspiration to somebody it's giving you you can't handle it then get the hell out of the way and let somebody else do it right sorry yeah if you're winning all the time then go win you are now a competitor. But if you're somehow like myself, I became, let's say, an inspiration, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. And yes, a competitors typically become, because you can't win all the time. I, I just would love to be able to, say, here's these opportunities. So I I guess going back to those opportunities, I'm in the ski shop. I'm in some little ski shop I've never been to and may never ever go again because the rep brought me there. And I'm standing there and they have customers lining up because I'm going to be there and they're bringing in pictures for me to sign. Mm-hmm. That is an opportunity. Every one of those autographs is an opportunity. And again, I'm not trying to freaking climb no dang ladder. I'm right. just trying to be you. Be what I feel like I'm supposed to be—that's—that's it's opportunities at a very, very small level, and again, those lead to other ones where you walk through the door and—and she's and who knows what the heck's going to come. Right. Well, I you think know. there's this. <laughs> there's Sorry, a, it's really. Well, I think what you're I speaking to. I wish I could to... figure it out, but I can't.
0: Well I think what you're speaking to is kind of the serendipitous nature of life, right? Yeah. And it sounds, you know, you just commented on there's a plan that a higher power oh, got, without kind doubt. of <laughs> guiding us, but it sounds like you're do you have religion in your life?
1: Yeah. yeah. Kimberly's Southern Baptist and well I certainly was I grew up as a skier. <laughs> it's a religion, you know. <laughs> you know, and and unfortunately, most people in the mountain communities and in the alpine communities Uh, worship the creation instead of the creator Mm -hmm. i i've seen enough dang peaks i've been on enough damn summits to realize that uh these are not the the things we should be worshiping we should be we should be worshiping the person or the entity that that created all this stuff because it didn't just fall out of the sky clearly there's something going on so anyways kimberly grew up in southern baptist and again like i said i grew up in the ski area it took the one of the hardest things for me and kimberly's um, relationship was what to do on a sunday because in a resort town that's a working day a big time working day Mm -hmm. uh in uh southeast texas that's church day (laughs) You know, yeah, that, that was actually an interesting hurdle that we had to kind of overcome. Lo and behold, uh, her parents prayed for me a lot. Yeah, uh, I got saved. Gosh, quite a while ago. I don't remember. Twenty, long time ago. Got dumped in the river. Uh
0: huh. <laughs> <laughs> and did that? Did that help you navigate losing Remy and Craig? Because I, yeah. I think I read somewhere. So that yeah, you were trippy
1: thing there. Yeah, without reading your Bible. Right? So yeah, I was actually reading dailies whenever I go on expedition. I read, I mean, I read dailies a lot actually, but especially on expedition, it's just that moment where you wake up in the morning and kind of get things right. And especially on expedition, you're on, I mean, contrary to what people think, I mean, it's freaking dangerous. I mean, you know, I mean, we can climb all the mountains and you can have the industry of, you know, high altitude tourism, but the reality is you're walking the line. You can die pretty easy. (laughs) Um, It's, it's not guaranteed up there. Things, weird things happen. Yeah, it's uh, it's just my kind of morning routine. I wake up and, and uh, read my dailies and read a message behind that and, and uh, okay, go on down the road. When I got saved, I realized it was good to um, not care anymore. I don't care. There's an old quote uh, that said, sometimes I care a lot and sometimes I don't care at all. And it's loosely aligned with Mark Twight. That's a scary thing, actually, if you think about it, (laughs) because there are moments when I care a lot, and there are, in fact, moments when I don't care at all, and sometimes it takes that to maybe get past that move. (laughs) Um, for better or for worse, you certainly don't want your rope partner saying that, but (laughs) like, Whoa, wait a minute. What are you doing? (laughs) Um, brace for a fall. Uh, yeah. So when I got saved, it's, it was nice to, let's say not have a care anymore. Right. I turned off thinking about it. I turned off trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, we still have day-to-day decisions. We still have, you know, things that we let's say uh have to obligations and decisions that we have to make. But the reality is, um, it's a bit of a piece to say, yeah, we're just gonna get on down the line here. Right. It's not a cop out, although it sounds like one. It's not.
0: It just is. We've all got a different path. Greatest to walk. plan's
1: gonna go bad for sure. Yeah. You know, you're definitely not in control of the situation. And again I'm, I've had some proof to that. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, I got uh got saved there and yes, I was reading reading samuel of all dang things mm-hmm. um the uh second the uh, wind blast hit us right on manislu pretty trippy actually
0: i think that would mess mess with my head i asked jt this you know i asked him what if he ever wondered why he was still here mm-hmm. you know and i think it's a very analogous situation with you in the manislu accident mm-hmm. does that Absolutely. ever trip your head out
1: no um again that was where my faith uh really was able to shine and uh i wasted no time asking any questions that don't have the answers right on no i never asked one of those questions yeah there was no answer you know yeah. it's like what's uh what's his name um, the dang country western singer that's really popular now he used to be a bluegrass guy now he's all famous um you know he's got that song on the radio like there's things that are only known by the by and by don't ask the question you know basically right <laughs> and uh yeah don't ask a the question there ain't no answer to. Right. And you do not deserve to know the answer. Right. Who are you? <laughs> Who the hell are you? Yeah. You know, it's like Job, you know. Yeah. You know, you're reading Job, you know, and hang on, you know, his buddies are giving him all this advice, (laughs) you know, and finally the Lord steps in and is like, were you there the day I made the birds fly? Were you there the day I called dawn? Do you, you know I mean? That's some pretty powerful friggin' message right there, you know? No doubt, yeah. super, and you're kind of like, uh, you know, who the hell are you to freaking think you should ask any of these questions? So yes, in light of Manaslu, I never asked one of them. Mm -hmm. No way. I had some interesting things happen too. I mean, um, as I was walking down the mountain, um, you know, after I kind of rescued myself, one of the first people I ran into was was fortunately um, a very very close friend who in fact did go on to ski uh, Manaslu without oxygen that day, uh, or that that week. Um, that was pretty rad. They were there on a separate expedition, and we just happened was it to cross past. Greg Hill? Uh, no, uh, Bone. Uh, Benedict. Benedict. Yeah, the mutant. Um, and you know, Benedict, they had been uh, they got kicked off a of Choyo. And decided to go over to Manislu. So while we were in no means in sort, any sort of competition at all, yeah. we were in fact there both doing the same, uh, you know, had the same objective. Right. And yes, Hill was there also. Yeah. So anyways, Benedict was the first person that I saw right. after the accident because I saw somebody on skis and I knew there was only two other, three other people on skis. So that was an interesting, let's say, chance that Benedict would be the first person I see. I ended up going to their camp. On the way down, I found a sat phone that had a charged battery. I was able to call Kimberly before any of the news of the accident had hit the world stage. She sent out emails to everybody. So as the morning news was coming upon, there was already word for me and that she that I had talked to her Our climb manager was very adamant about me not getting on any sort of rescue equipment and to walk down henry todd was henry todd was very very adamant about glenn you walk off this dang mountain like if you can walk i want you to walk off this mountain and it was it was henry's kind of old school mentor that i needed to taper and taper wasn't going to take place if i got onto any sort of a rescue helicopter in fact i saw Someone who had gotten onto a rescue helicopter five weeks later and they were still shaking. Right. They had literally lost control of their life because their taper was not good. So I had these kind of weird things taking place, you know, in light of it. And so, yeah, my my taper out of a crazy experience, and then again, my faith. I, I did not ever ask how or why. Right. I, I mean, we can sit here and slide handle. What the heck am I doing here? Of course. Yeah. But I never waste any time actually trying to figure out why I was here. Of course, right. I sat there for a second. I believe, I personally believe Greg slid below me and went into a crevasse, and the bottom of the tent ripped out, and he went down, and I went over. I think that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know where it happened. And we never actually got hit by snow. We got hit by wind blast. Right. I was in a very, very small debris field compared to the chaos that had taken place in the other part of the mountain. I mean, there was it was a runner, war right? zone. I mean, there were bodies everywhere, tents. There. It was a freaking war zone. I was nowhere near them. In fact, people confused me for being a rescuer because I was completely off to the side. I was I had been blown off the freaking mountain by the wind blast. And, and again, I, I was in a very, very small debris field. It was not a uh, compared to what else was going on. Yeah, okay, you have a little bit of an analytical. I wonder what really happened there. But beyond that, uh, yeah. why or who or why me and not them and vice versa. So yeah. Never wasted, a th- never wasted a thought.
0: On behalf of the entire skiing, you know, multiple generations of skiers, yeah. you know, thank you for inspiring all of it's us all to a- get after it.
1: It's all I kind of really am. I've said along, just a dumb skier.
0: There's a lot of depth to you. (laughs) (laughs) You come off a certain way. There's a lot going on there. Cool, man. Well, thanks for taking the time to come.
1: Thank you guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for wrangling me. You guys have put me on the spot. I don't do a lot of that kind of stuff. And and by challenging me and putting me on the spot and making me, um, you know, do something, it was really fun.
0: Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Our production staff is a team of three. Myself, sound engineer Miles Heaps, and producer Kristen Hannah madigan The music of Season 3 is provided by the talented Old String Duo. Make sure to follow them on Instagram to enjoy more of their work. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. If you enjoy what we are doing, Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends.